Hi everyone, welcome to the Right Angle Podcast. This is the podcast that focuses on the process of design, where each episode I will highlight one exceptional creative individual with unique perspectives and experiences within the world of spatial design through actual conversations about their design principles, philosophy, and process. I want to discover what makes each designer, artillier, and artist unique. I'm your host, Al Liu, an interior designer in New York City. In the world that celebrates influencers, The Right Angle will be a podcast that celebrates real designers who makes the industry what it is, and for listeners to get a glimpse into the true creative mind. In this episode, I have Benjamin Weaver, founder and editor-in-chief of The London List with us today. The London List is a digital publication exploring art, architecture, and interiors. From carefully researched and thought-provoking articles to interviews with artists, makers, and industry insiders. With a particular focus on the defining aesthetic movements of the 20th and 21st centuries, the aim of The London List is to provide a voice on design, both past and present, discussing relevant and prescient topics with openness, honesty, and balanced academic rigor. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the Red Angle Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. It's lovely to join you. So I have never talked to a writer on the podcast before. So could you tell us a little about your background and what made you start The London List? I mean, my sort of background essentially is um, I originally read architecture at university and um, then converted and qualified as a barrister. And sort of after having, you know, sort of worked in law for some time, I decided that I missed art and design, um, but didn't want to do something whereby, you know, it was actual practice, which, you know, with the seven years for architecture, anyway, it would have seemed a little bit silly at that point. Um, (laughs) But also it's just not really as suited to my personality. I'm sort of fascinated by the history of design, design theory, And indeed, um, as an undergraduate, there was a very strong emphasis on art and design and history of art, which led into it all quite very much interlinked. And I still, as a result, have an awful lot of friends who work in design. Uh, My partner's a designer. And so sort of having talked about it on literally a daily basis, I had a lot of people who kept suggesting to me that I, you know, start doing something whereby I sort of put put these thoughts and ideas out there and also even with speaking to people in the profession i found you know a lot of people you speak to are extremely interesting and um, the types of people we tend to interview we don't often see uh interviews with that kind of person in the art world or interiors world as much yeah um and so, so that's what led into my starting the online magazine mm-hmm. and what's your mission or goal like what are you trying to accomplish um i'm not sure you know, there's a kind of specific thing I'm trying to accomplish as such. I mean, the idea behind it mm-hmm. is that within the interior sector, especially, a lot of existing publications, they tend to focus very heavily on um, things that are very trend-driven without any particular focus on design history and how contemporary design links into 20th century and history of design. So my kind of purpose of it uh, was to start writing articles and also putting together interviews that showed people how the history of architecture and the history of art and design were relevant and in fact entirely integral to contemporary work. 
And why do you want to mention, you know, design history? What do you think is the downside for design magazines that are heavily focused on trend? I mean, it sounds like an obvious question, but like I want to hear your point of view. I mean, partly uh, with regards, you know, them kind of being focusing on trends. Obviously, for magazines, not just in the interior sector, but across the board, for some years now, there's increasing problems for anything in print. And more and more so as a result, a lot of these magazines rely very heavily on advertisers and product placement. And so it's become such an important part of keeping magazines going that there's understandably a very heavy bias towards those sorts of topics and those sorts of, you know, very trend-driven um, articles. Um, I think for me, you often, with the, you know, sort of rise of Pinterest, there are so many interior design studios that whereby, you know, when they're putting together a uh, mood board or they're putting yeah. together imagery if to inspire a project, there are a lot of these images that come from Pinterest. And first off, they don't have any real description as to what they are. You know, you have these sort of images floating in space with no context. And so people then find them, they have no real art historical knowledge, and so they don't know what they are or how to find out what they are. And so you end up with a lot of these, often 20th century imagery, on mood boards, which then very heavily inspire design. Sometimes people are very deliberately plagiarizing. Sometimes they don't necessarily know that that's even the case. They just see something, they think it looks cool, and they uh, decide to replicate it uh, or take elements of it and insert them into a contemporary interior. Uh, without any real knowledge of what's going on. But to me, you know, I think all design, it, it, it comes from somewhere. You know, especially in the 20th century, it's such a fascinating period because everything is so heavily interlinked and everything leads on theory, art and design. They are of one. And so to me, the sort of greater understanding one has of where design came from, often, you know, the more refined contemporary work can become. So why do you think designers have this urge of perhaps copying something and then took it as if they did it? I think, you know, it's, it's a complex area. And I think for different designers, uh, there are different reasons behind it. And also it depends to the level, you know, of copying or inspiration we're talking about. I mean, you will have some people, for example, where there's a very, very similar chair to something that was, say, done in the 1950s or 60s. And they will very clearly say, this is an homage to, or this was inspired by, in which case, you know, there are people who would object to that and, you know, saying it's still a copy, you know, it's not okay to claim this as their work. Whereas you'll have other designers who, for example, there will be absolutely no reference to the original designer, they will not be given any credit, it will purely be put out as if this is a new and original piece of work. And there is clearly, you know, such a fascination by 20th century design, and, you know, especially uh, in America, this sort of mid-century look is, um, it's, it's hugely popular, and increasing in popularity, in fact. And so anybody who can tap into that and bring a range out, you know, perhaps isn't as anywhere near as expensive as original pieces, a good many people, all they're interested in achieving is a look. You know, they don't necessarily care about where it comes from, who the designer is. You know, at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have designers who, for example, they might take a detail from an interior, for example, a fireplace from a 1920s room, or a vanity or a sink from a 1920s interior. And a lot of these works, they're not particularly well known. Um, yeah. And even imagery of them, a lot of the books are out of print, they're quite hard to come by. And so, you know, I think there's this sort of question of um, if it's an architectural element and the original no longer exists, if it's been destroyed or the building is to be demolished or if it's been dismantled, there's this kind of, I think, moral question of 
you know, where do you draw a line at something being a copy? Where do you draw a line at it being plagiarism? You know, is a fireplace taken from something in the 1920s that no longer exists? Uh, a lot of people wouldn't consider that to be copying as much as they would, but if, say, a chair that's still under copyright to XYZ person, you know, for example, I mean, a wishbone chair, which is one of perhaps the most copied, or the Eileen Grain's table, she designed the Havilla, which is, again, I think, one, probably one of the most copied pieces in the world. Um, and, you know, so I've discussed before in articles, it's, I think a lot of people are very quick to jump on this issue of copyright and copying and plagiarism with 20th century work. But obviously, you know, if you sort of go back to the 18th century with this kind of French classical style in particular, even at the time it was copied, it's been copied for centuries since. You know, you will have hotels who have hundreds of, you know, for example, Louis XVI chairs copied and nobody will bat an eye. And yet objectively, you know, it's still plagiarizing another designer's work to the same extent. I think to my mind, though, on the whole, it would, uh, you know, design and architecture could benefit from things that were closer to something that's original rather than, you know, taking very, very mm -hmm. heavy inspiration from past interiors. For sure. That's a really good point. And, you know, I want to chat with you more about your process for writing. So how is that like? And, you know, how do you come up with each topic? I think uh, originally when I first started, it was a, a lot more research led because I had a lot more gaps in my knowledge that I needed to, you know, plug essentially. Um, yeah. You know, I think the more one reads and writes um, about design, there are elements that crop up that you realize you need to know more about or you need to understand better how contextually and historically these things are linked. Um, and so I think as I have read more and I, you know, sort of have a greater understanding of uh, 20th century design, uh, I have less need, you know, to kind of go to books and solidly read about it. I wouldn't say that I have a particular formula. You know, I used to write more essays on specific designers, for example, you know, I mean, an article on Jean Prouvé or an article on Jean Royer. And obviously then, you know, you're going to have to do a lot of research and reading on a designer in particular. I mean, just for the basis of how, where they came from, you know, why they went into design, how their style evolved and developed. And, you know, inevitably, you need to read multiple sources to really understand what that is. If I'm, though, for example, uh, write something in design that I've come across that I think is interesting, if I'm talking to somebody in the art world or design world, they will say something to me. And at the time, I just think, you know, that's a really interesting idea. That's uh, as a thought. It's fascinating. And so that can sometimes spur an entire article. You know, sometimes it could be something that I disagree with entirely. Uh, but by my disagreeing with it, it will make me myself think, well, why do I disagree with it? You know, why do I object to that? Is my, and I question myself of thinking, you know, is my inherent reaction to it justified? It sort mm -hmm. of depends article by article, really. Right. And to follow up on what you just said, could you give us an example of, you know, how you develop a thought into an entire article? I mean, actually, uh, at the moment, for example, I had met somebody recently who works in the art world and we were discussing something in interiors and they just thought it was something that was very tacky to their mind. To say something is tacky, it comes from, it's so bound up with social background, schooling, how you've grown up, where you've grown up. It's a lot more complex, actually, as a gut reaction to something. You know, it's something that inherently is not universal. It's the same with taste you can have no one answer to it and so you know from this i've kind of vaguely been thinking about if there's a possibility of how this could be translated into an 
article. I'm very interested in people and the way in which people think. You know, I wrote something similar on the question of how people say things are chic, and especially in design and art world, it's a word that comes up. It's sort of thing, well, what does it mean? Where does it come from? And so even entomologically, what does it mean? But then why does it mean different things to different people? And it's one of these peculiar things. It's sort of interesting as a concept and it can't be defined. You know, it's sort of one of these things for a lot of people um, where they say, you know, well, I know it when I see it. And to a large extent, that's true. I think very interestingly as a concept and an attribute, it's inherently bound up with a person and their appearance and their lifestyle. Uh, you know, Coco Chanel is somebody who everybody always thinks of as being incredibly chic. Yet she had the most appalling political views. During the Second World War, she was an open supporter of the Nazi party. And yet today, people still consider her to be this incredibly chic woman, and she was. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those sort of interesting things in that clearly the idea of somebody being chic, it's somewhat, you know, separated from their personality, which is, you know, it's an odd way of thinking about it. But then repeatedly, you know, throughout history, you've had people that one sort of goes on about who's stylistically very incredible. And yet they have very, very, you know, negative aspects of the personality. Right. That's a very fascinating topic. And, you know, talking about articles you wrote, oftentimes I will come across this topic of originality. And what does it mean to be original? Could you expand your thoughts on that a little? It's almost, you know, now, after the 20th century and everything that went before it, it's, I think, very, very difficult to do anything entirely original. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have architects, I think, you know, if you think about things that have never been seen before, like Zaha Hadid. I mean, you had people like Wendell Castle, who produced, especially, you know, he had a very, very long production. And towards the end of his life, he was producing some extraordinarily uh, modern, abstract, contemporary pieces of furniture. So you have designers like that, huh? or, you know, Daniel Liebskind, who are producing these kind of really, you know, pushing the limits of what a building is. But then you have those, you know, sort of designers who their aesthetic is unique and original to the extent that it separates them from the rest of the interior design world. You have people like Pierre Ivanovich, who he will produce work that you can see that there is a classical, classical inspiration. And you can see that certain proportions or certain stylistic elements that they have come from classical origins. And he will use a lot of mid-century pieces in his work. Yet there is um, an unquestionable newness and modernity in uh, the way that he puts things together, the way that he uses materials, the way that he combines um, elements in interior that haven't, you know, it hasn't really been done by anybody else in that way before. But I think across the board in interiors, there is this um, obsession with achieving a sort of almost homogenous, uh, fashionable, popular interior look, um, which I think has possibly to a large extent come out of a lot of these LA interiors that belong to celebrities, which are published over and over and over and over again. You have this a lot in LA where you know you're combining a lot of uh, bold, contemporary, modern, modern art and 20th century furniture pieces with, you know, kind of eye-catching sculptures or, you know, works of art against sort of largely white backgrounds with wooden floors and high volumes. Uh, And I think, you know, this was a very seductive editorial look, which is entirely understandable. You know, I mean, essentially you're 
taking pieces by the kind of greats of 20th century design and combining it with beautiful art, comfortable fabrics. It's a, it's a very lovely, easy way of living. But this, I think it became so popular that it's, that's just what people wanted. And you had the people who first did this, people who did it very well, like Clement's Design, for example. You know, they've done a lot of uh, celebrity homes to being widely publicized, but they, they have a particular talent for combining works, combining pieces of art and achieving a kind of very elegant, harmonious overall interior. But, you know, obviously, these designers also, the more popular they become, they are very expensive to work with. And so I think you've got a lot of designers cropping up who were catering for people who wanted this look without the budget and who couldn't necessarily afford original pieces of furniture that are seen frequently in these homes. And, you know, this links into why we're seeing so many copies of furniture, copies of pieces, because it's just put together in a way that gives people a look that's very fashionable, very trend-driven. And I think, to my mind, you know, you have so many interiors firms who are chasing an aspirational look rather than trying to invest in designing interiors that are something new and something different. A lot of the interior designers who I like a great deal myself, whose work I really admire, you know, by no means is it groundbreaking, but equally they are doing something or they are able to create an aesthetic that's new that hasn't been seen before. You know, by no means am I saying that you have to break the mold because I think that's very hard, if not impossible. But I think, you know, you can equally come up with an interior and you can come up with, you know, a way of working with materials, with a way of working with design, the way you put things together that is new and that is, you know, unique to that firm. And I think there needs to be more of a focus on doing that rather than beyond, you know, sort of purely reproducing other designers' work. Right. And who are some designers whose work you admire the most? I mean, uh, I think a lot of people I like, you know, they vary between things to consider very con- contemporary, yet they also, you know, have a lot of work that is is very classical and very traditional. I mean, I love Axel Velvort, um, but for me, I think, you know, what fascinates me is that he's able to create a level of patina and a level of warmth and history in an interior. And I think Axel Velvort, he can take a shell that is entirely new and has nothing that is particularly original or you know worthwhile in it necessarily you know i mean even new builds and he can put together a look that feels as if it's been collected over decades and i think part of that is that he is incredibly interested in materiality and in only using uh real noble materials you know if it's a piece of wood it's a piece of wood it's not a veneer or it's not something trying to be something you know and i to me, that's something that is very important in the interior. And especially, you know, if we're looking forward, ecologically speaking, uh, I hate that you have so many homes, especially in the luxury sector, where somebody will design it, somebody will then, you know, the owner will sell it two years later, they will tear the entire interior out. And this can happen, you know, every two, three years. And it happened a lot in London. And you would see, you know, sort of slabs of marble being carried out and thrown into skips, which I think is, you know, a really appalling way of doing things. But I think, you know, as designers, uh, there has to be more of a focus on building interiors to last, whereby, you know, it's the intention of the new owner. They may change things for their own tastes or, you know, certain things may not work for them. And that's something that obviously has to be taken into account. But I think we should be designing with the idea that interiors and homes can be built upon 
not just started from scratch. And I think Axel Verbort's interiors, he manages to create things that uh, they have such an integrity that almost, you know, a history to them that other people just can't really do. I think he's extraordinary for that. You know, another designer who I absolutely love is the kind of uh, Atelier AM, who are obviously a team. But, you know, I think they have uh, such a refined taste for art and objects and the way in which they curate an interior. Uh, their detailing is extraordinary and their eye for detail. And, you know, equally in a similar way to Axel Verbal, it's a very different style. But their choice of materials, there's always a warmth and a depth to it. You can see that there's a, uh, a passion and there's a, a real soul to the interiors they put together. I mean, Jacques Grange is another, obviously, a kind of, it almost goes without saying in that, you know, sort of so many people look up to his work. And again, I think it's because his work never screams and shouts, but there's an originality to it. For the majority of his work, um, I think there's a there's a classical basis to it. You know, the way in which he lays out a room, it's there's a formality to the way in which he places furniture. And his configurations and the way he puts the room together make enormous amounts of sense, but there's also a sort of a, a flow and a balance to everything he does. But after, you know, you have that kind of structure, and backbone to one of his interiors, there will always, you know, there will be whimsical uh, aspects to it. The way that he will um, use a material or tile a bathroom or the materials he will use for a door or, you know, the way he uses certain things like straw marquetry or marble, it's, it's done in a way that it hasn't been seen before. One of my biggest bugbears in contemporary design and also a lot of contemporary interiors photography seen in magazines is that things are very white, they're overly styled, you know, everything is too crisp, it's too perfect, it's too empty. You know, I know a lot of magazines when they're shooting people's homes, they will remove a lot of uh, objects that are very personal to the owner because they want this kind of, I don't know, this sort of sterile, uh, slightly empty appearance. And, you know, I think for me, what's often so interesting about an interior is the signs of the owner you know especially if you're for example talking about a collector or somebody uh like i know um maya hoffman who indy mehevi did her london home i think indy mehevi is an absolutely extraordinary designer almost installations within her interiors and yet there's nothing clownish about it there's nothing that's just there to be editorial um there's an originality to it and there's uh, an elegance to it but at the sort of very famous photo shoot that was, I think, in AD magazine for this interior, I think my favorite image is something where it's her husband's study and it's sort of one room where there are papers piled up everywhere and, you know, there are signs of life. And I think that's, to me, I love seeing these signs of the people that live in an interior. And it was very much a symbiosis of owner and designer. And, you know, I think with Jacques Grange, with Atelier AM, um, with Caroline Sarkozy, with all of these people, I mean, especially Pierre Yovanovitch, who's obviously in particular a lot of his own design pieces are so identifiable. But there's something of a designer's own character in it that's recognizable. And I think what makes it very special is that they are confident enough in, their, in themselves that they are able to put a lot of themselves into their interiors. 
And so to my mind, if a lot more designers, you know, focused on Sergeac Grange interior appeals to asking themselves to, you know, really look at the image and analyze it. Don't just think I want to reproduce it, but ask why the room is so appealing. You know, I think if you really pick a room apart and you ask yourself, well, what is it that makes that so appealing? Why is this all over Instagram? Why is it all over Pinterest? You know, why have there been so many photo shoots? And, you know, if you can really have the ability to pick that interior apart and pull out the elements that are so appealing to people, and I think to then say to yourself, okay, I'm now going to do from scratch, you know, these are elements I admire, these are elements that I think are successful. I'm going to focus on creating an interior where I'm taking that and I want to create this atmosphere, but without duplicating it. Right. Absolutely. I think that's a very good point you made on, you know, how to use reference. And to circle back to the London List as a publication, so were you expecting the success and attention it has gotten so far? In all honesty, I sort of went into it not really knowing what to expect. I didn't know how it would be taken. I mean, I think I became obviously more confident the longer that I was doing it. You know, by no means uh, do I understand everything. Do I have a very set view on everything? You know, I will often speak to someone who I find particularly interesting, who might completely change my view on something. You know, I, I always try to be very sincere in what I write. The more I think that I have written things that are of personal interest and of personal opinions, it's sort of grown in popularity since then, really. And, you know, as I've said, a kind of a... A huge, huge thing with me is that I'm I'm genuinely very, very interested in people, and I am perfectly happy to people to disagree with me. And you know, I would rather somebody give me their real opinion than you know trying to give what they think is the correct opinion.、Mm-hmm. But I mean, equally, you know, I think、uh, what people seem to like and what I'm often told about,、uh, you know, why they like the writing. Is that I sort of don't really make any concessions to commerciality, or、mm. um, you know, if I want to write about a subject topic, or if I want to run an interview of a particular person, it's because I think there is genuinely something interesting about it, and I don't necessarily care if that's something that's particularly fashionable or if it's a trend. And、uh, so, because really, I never have.、Um, You know, in mind whether I think something's going to attract,、uh, you know, a large audience, or whether it's something that's particularly fashionable at X, Y, Z moment. I mean, equally, you know, as I mentioned before, I think personally there needs to be a lot less of a focus on what is fashionable and more of an emphasis on, you know, what is、uh, what has substance to it.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely the way to do it. So, you know, towards the end of the episode, I always ask my guests this question. So, looking back, was there a moment or factor in your life that helped you to be where you are right now? That's because of luck. Everything I've sort of done really has been,、um, you know, I've always had reasons for doing it. I don't think there's anything I've ever fallen into from educationally at every aspect of my life and so on. You know, I'm slightly. Perhaps overly analytical of、uh, myself and my choices, but、uh, everything has always been a very particular choice that I've had reasons for at that moment. Sometimes、uh, it's been completely the wrong choice, but it's hard to say, you know, whether or not you shouldn't have made that decision because you know things feed into, you know, your life later on and how you view the world and how you interact with it. And so I think, you know. 
every experience that you go through in life, it's very much a part of what makes you a person and what forms your opinions and, you know, what makes you who you are. But I think for me, everything is always, you know, it's been very much uh, something that I've, you know, gone into with a very specific intention. Gotcha. I love how strategic you are. And, you know, so in the end, I like to ask each guest five quick fire questions. And the first one is, what's your favorite book? I think the thing that pops to mind is something that, you know, is probably one of the things I've read more quickly than anything else is uh, a book by Edouard Louis, uh, The End of Eddie, which is obviously a kind of semi-fictional, semi-autobiographical portrayal of the writer's life growing up in the French countryside. It's it's a very interesting topic, but also emotionally and, you know, the kind of range of things that he's been through in life. And he's, uh, it's a really fascinating book. And I think kind of on the opposite end of something, you know, art historically, uh, there's a book uh, called Double Vision about um, uh, Dominique de Menil and her husband and their family history. And it's a sort of really, it's an enormous book. It's absolutely vast, in fact, but it really kind of captures um, what significant people they were and what an important contribution they made to 20th century art and design. It's, it's a really fascinating look at two people who are, you know, such unique characters that are so important. And the second one is, since you already mentioned your favorite designers, I'm wondering who is your favorite artist? Um, Artists-wise, there's no one artist genuinely. I mean, I think there's an area that I'm instantly drawn to. A lot of the artists Mm -hmm. I tend to like, both historically speaking and contemporary, I have a love of, you know, Catalan artists. I think even a lot of the contemporary artists I buy now, they are all uh, Catalonian. And I think there's an incredible strength to the art that comes out of the area. Um, And it's just something that's just always inherently appealed to me. I mean, actually on design wise, I mean, contemporary designers, uh, for a lot, I think historically speaking, you know, for a kind of numerous designers that instantly come to mind, but I mean, you know, I consistently talk about people like Jean-Michel Franck, Marc Duplantier, uh, but you know, it's these sort of 20th century people in design that I always find their work just absolutely extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And the next question is, what's the most fun place you've been before? I mean, on a note of fun places, I think, you know, there's um, the place that I just particularly love instantly is Paris. Um, and I know there's always that kind of joke about saying, you know, the best thing about London is how easy it is to get to Paris. But mm-hmm. um for not just the art I mean it's obviously a very very beautiful place but I think there's such a uh, particular and unique aesthetic even within design I mean it's something I often reference a lot of the designers I tend to you know post imagery of or talk about or French but you know even recently I was there in September and I was talking to quite a few gallerists and one thing that comes up again and again on the note you know of topics we discussed on trends and fashions but there were so many designers and gallerists who said to me that they are not remotely driven by what is fashionable. They do what they do because they think that there is a uh, purpose to it and that there's something that they wish to express. And they kind of have the view that if people like that, they like it. And if they don't, they don't. And it's this kind of, I think, a really wonderful attitude that, you know, they are doing it to do the best of what they can. And if it's, you know, all of these people are, who I'm, you know, discussing in particular, they are all very successful individuals, but it's success isn't what drives them. 
it's uh, a sincere, uh, you know, desire to, you know, put out their own particular viewpoint in the world. And I think it's, uh, it's just a really wonderful way of seeing things. And so I think for me as a city, the kind of this, the attitude towards design, the sort of aesthetic I just always find incredibly appealing. Mm-hmm. I love that. And how do you decompress? Bizarrely, I mean, a lot of my kind of very close friends work in art design, but I think it's for me, I just, you know, I, I just like to sort of see good friends and uh, often, bizarrely, discussing a lot of art and things. But as I say, that's why I got a lot of my inspiration. I mean, the, the magazine and my writing, to be honest, it's, um, I find it quite cathartic. I mean, for me, it's not something that I ever find stressful. Mm-hmm. And so it's that in itself. It's not something that I necessarily need to decompress from. Um, but, you know, sort of general uh, relaxation. I mean, I I think, you know, there are certain people who I absolutely love having conversations with because uh, I just find them absolutely fascinating. And for me, you know, that's a wonderfully relaxing thing to do. Yeah, that's a dream. And what's your biggest pet peeve? I think my biggest pet peeve in terms of, you know, designs is, is this obsession with chasing trends. It's often a question people are asked of, you know, what's a trend you most dislike? I mean, to me, I dislike all trends. I just think inherently it's a bad thing. I think it sets the design world back and I think it's entirely unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, it's instantly what always comes to mind. If I hate anything that is there just because it's, you know, flash or editorial, but it's mm-hmm. uh, in at this particular moment. Gotcha. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time and talking to me. And I absolutely love what you're saying. You know, I really looking forward to uh, what Linden List will become in the future. I'm like the first one who reads your article every time it came out. So it's great. Well, thank you very much for your time as well. It's always lovely to know that people are interested in what I'm writing. And so, you know, I very much appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Red Angle Podcast. If you like this episode, subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can stay connected with us through Instagram at the Red Angle Podcast, or reach out to me personally at Elo Design. I linked everything about my guests in the show notes, so please go check it out. Thanks again for listening, and see you guys next Wednesday.